How's everybody doing? Everybody feeling all right? Are you sure? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a Bible verse and then I'm going to give you my disclaimer at the beginning because we're going to go into some new territory, which is always a scary thing for you and me. Never a surprise. So Hebrews 12, um, just read the last few verses here. Hebrews 12, we're going to look at a lot of verses because I want you to see I'm not making stuff up. Hebrews 12, verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape. Which is actually in italics, which means it's not in the original text, but... Whatever. If we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he's promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Look at this part. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of things that are being shaken as of things that are made. That the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. I want want you to look at verse 27. Yet once more indicating the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made. So there's been a whole lot of shaking going on, right? (laughs) So here's, here's the foundational principle to it. If it can be shaken, it needs to be removed. So if you are going through a shaking or a deconstruction or you get shook up about something, it's worth examining and embracing the shaking. Most people, when they when something gets shaken in terms of their really solid belief system, they get triggered and they go into a defensive posture to maintain their comfort level. Because in psychology, there's this thing called cognitive dissonance where you believe something and then you're presented with opposite evidence. Usually for the first time, you don't immediately embrace the opposite evidence. Jesus said it this way, no one tasting the new wine immediately desires it for they say the old is better, right? So if you get shook up today, (laughs) the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. Now, now that's the jesting part. Here's the serious part. I realize uh, I, I have wrestled with sharing some of these things for a long time because I realize that probably all of us are going to get triggered. And when I say triggered, what I mean is you have an emotion, you have a negative emotional response. You have some kind of an emotional charge on what you're hearing or what's going on. And if I could admonish you about anything, it would be this. That when you get triggered, it's more about you and what's going on inside of you than what's going on around you or about the other person. Very few people are able to look inside themselves when they get triggered and ask themselves, why am I triggered, and are willing to do work inside themselves to figure that out. They automatically assume that if they're triggered, that they are correct and the other person is incorrect. Then they get mad and move on. So here's the truth. The greatest temptation to be offended is the precursor to your greatest spiritual breakthrough. You got it? The temptation to be offended is the precursor to your greatest spiritual breakthrough. 
And if you choose to be offended, you are walking away from the breakthrough. (laughs) All right? So, let's shift gears now that I've set you up. Let's talk about the biblical model for marriage. The biblical model. Not my ideas, not anybody's ideas in the room, but the biblical model. Now, I remember in the 2000, I think it was the 2008 election, uh, George W. Bush against, was it John Kerry? And Bush won a decisive victory. And the story that was out was that what had won the day was the values voters. Do you remember that? The values voters. And they were called values voters because they were voting based on two primary issues. They were voting based on a pro-life versus pro-choice or the abortion issue and the legalization or not legalization of homosexual marriage. And so the conservatives, the evangelicals turned out in droves. In some states, those issues were on the ballot and more people turned out to vote on that issue than they did actually the presidential election. But because they were conservative, when they did vote for president, they voted for George W. Bush. So the values voters, right? And there was a lot of... uh movement to for acceptance for homosexuality, homosexual marriages, things like that. And preachers all over, including myself, would stand up and say, the biblical, the biblical model for marriage is one man and one woman. How many of you have heard that? How many of you feel deeply convicted by that? And we would always go to Genesis. <laughs> to the Genesis story of Adam and Eve. And people would make jokes, well, God put Adam and Eve in the garden, not Adam and Steve. (laughs) Right? And we would hold that up and say, this is the biblical model of marriage. And I think an argument can be made that Adam and Eve is actually more about the story of origins and, and polarity or opposites. Because you see in the first part of the Genesis account, the creation of polarity, light and darkness, right? Water, land, whatever. I mean, you do it however you want to do it. And then ultimately, the man and the woman representing the male energy and the feminine energy. And then I think we have this idea that God brought Eve to Adam and they did a wedding ceremony. So... It can be argued for sure that marriage being between one man and one woman is a biblical, is a biblical pattern. But let's look at another biblical pattern because here's, here's the problem. Now, I'm gonna have fun with this this morning while I'm triggering you. So you can either choose to have fun with this or you can choose to get upset about this. It's your choice. Because I want to address some things that have been very destructive. See, one of the one of the reasons I'm going here, and you'll see this in a minute, I'm going to kind of be all over the board, but I've just been thinking about this, that Christianity as a general rule gives you a cure for a sickness that they convince you that you have. Or they give you the cure, the cure for the disease that they just 
gave you. In other words, they have to convince you that you're lost before they can convince you that you need to be saved. I was talking to Kevin in between, and he was talking about mercy and receiving mercy, and he said, in actuality, to have mercy, a judgment first has to be passed. And I thought, that's, that's incredibly profound. That you can't, mercy cannot exist unless judgment precedes it. Right? So, if we believe the human heart is corrupt, if we believe the human species is somehow alien to God, or in need of change, or in need of transformation, or in need of salvation, then our gospel becomes a transactional gospel to try to save us, or change us, or at least get us right with God so that we can go to heaven. I no longer believe in that kind of a gospel, and I can't say that clearly enough. If, if that's a deal breaker for you, then the deal is broken. <laughs> I believe that the gospel message is, uh, is to awaken you to a presence and power of the divine that has been in you all along. That at the core of your nature, you are divine, not corrupt. And the problem is the, these illusions that we get caught in about who we are. And so the, 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 a, a real good news message is an awakening of your consciousness out of the sleep or the dream world that you've been in into the reality of who you actually really are. So that there is nothing corrupt or nothing that needs to be changed. So that makes the Adam and Eve story very important. But let's, let's just stay for a minute on the issue of marriage, all right? So we want to hold up Adam and Eve as the biblical model of marriage when it ended in a curse. It, it ended in a curse. It ended in death. It ended in hardship during labor. And it ended in getting kicked out of the garden and having to work and weeds and all that stuff. The end of it is the curse. So, so really, the, the Adam and Eve story is about our origins, and it's about the, that writer's conceptualization of what the problem is. <laughs> right? This is what started all the stuff. Like Jimmy Buffett said, you know, there's a woman to blame, and it's Eve. <laughs> right? Now, God starts over. Now, if you're Jewish, if you're Christian, you think God started over with Jesus, but that's, that's, not, that's not accurate. In the book of Genesis, and if you're Jewish, you believe God started over with Abraham. Abraham is the restoration of the blessing. So you have the curse and the fall actually from a Hebraic perspective takes place from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11 when you have the Tower of Babel. And then God begins to restore the blessing to humanity through Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And then, of course, you have God identifying himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the title for God used most in the Bible is, ready for this? The God of Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel, which becomes the title of the nation of the chosen people of God, right? And and he is the patriarch who gives birth to the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. So let's take a look at Jacob. (laughs) Come with me, if you would, Genesis. We're just going to look at this. Genesis 29, I believe. Yeah, so Genesis, so without reading the whole story, um, Jacob lies, all right, this is the founder, this is the, the founder of the feast, right, this is the guy God chose to give birth to the 12 tribes. He, he lies to his dad, 
<laughs> to steal his father's blessing. And his mom says, your brother's going to kill you. And you need to hit the road. Go to my brother's house. Watch this. Very important. Go to my brother's house. My brother Laban. He'll take you in. So Jacob takes off. He ends up with Laban. Laban has at least two daughters. But the second uh, daughter is Rachel. <laughs> now here's what it says about the two women. It says that Rachel was very beautiful and that Jacob fell in love with Rachel. It says that Leah was dim eyed but in the it's it's a it's a hebrew word that means she was homely <laughs> she, she she was the ugly sister right <laughs> but she's the oldest so basically let's see where this picks up sorry i had this in a different bible marked and not in this one I really want you to be able to see it. I could just tell you the story. Yeah, let's just do verse 15. It says, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what should be your wages. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate. Now that's just a, a, a like a slang term for she was hard on the eyes. It's just the truth. I love how our translators just sanctify this stuff and try to make it what it wasn't. That, that's a politically correct way of saying, you ugly. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, that's in their Bible. But Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now, Jacob loved Rachel. Well, of course he did. So he said, I will serve you. Watch this. He said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed only a few days to him because he had so much love for her. Isn't this a beautiful romantic story? (laughs) Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my days are fulfilled that I may go into her. Another sanctified way of saying something. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah his daughter and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came to pass in the morning that behold it was Leah or Leah and he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it must not be done in our country, or it must not be done so in our country to give the youngest before the firstborn. Fulfill her week and we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve me yet another seven years. So watch what Laban does here. It's pretty interesting. He, he kind of offers Rachel as bait. And so... Basically, you know, he works seven years to get Rachel, and then he has a feast, and then somehow he slips Leah in there, and Jacob doesn't figure it out until the next morning. Think about this. So then Laban says, well, you know, that's not, we're not supposed to do that. You know, I, I know I didn't tell you that ahead of time. We're not supposed to do that, but I can get another seven years labor out of you, and I'll let you have Rachel too. And that's how it went down. What's missing in the text? Thank you. There's no ceremony. I mean, you've got to ask yourself, how does he not know that he's not getting Rachel? 
I mean, you got to ask yourself that question. If she walked down the aisle in her beautiful wedding dress, and he kissed the bride, like even if she had a veil on, you know, at that moment, it'd be like, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> you may kiss the bride. No, I don't want to. <laughs> Because the the biblical model of marriage is not love and it's not choice. What if Rachel didn't like Jacob? There's nothing in there about Rachel loving Jacob. There's nothing in there about Rachel choosing Jacob. There's nothing in there about premarital counseling. And if you don't come to premarital counseling, we're not going to marry you in this church. There, there's none of that. Because you got to understand that in the ancient cultures, it was strictly a business transaction between the father and whoever the father wanted to give, give his daughter to. And the giving was all about the sex. So he had a feast, they had a feast, and then when the night came, and this is culturally true, oftentimes the parents would watch the deal go down because the dad had to guarantee that the, that the daughter was a virgin. And if the daughter was not a virgin, then the man would be compensated for his labor or get his money back on the dowry. Because women were not co-equals with men. They were property. And in Jewish culture, at the time of Jesus, they were considered less valuable than a donkey. So, I hate to break it to you. I can... But this is just the biblical model. Adultery was not a sexual issue. Adultery was a property crime. Absolutely. Look at the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not cover, covet thy neighbor's property, and the wife is included in the coveting of your neighbor's property. It's on the list. If you had to choose between saving your donkey or saving your wife, you would save your donkey. That was just Jewish culture. So there's no ceremony, there's no vows, there's no choice from the woman. It's a business transaction, right? And with the founder of the feast, there's more than one. Because he didn't get the one he wanted. He got, I mean, this is the original bait and switch. You know what bait and switch is, right? It's, it's illegal. You can't advertise, you know, hey, we got this car, this, this brand new car for $500, and then the person comes in and says, oh, the person right before you just bought it, but let me show you this car for $2,000. That's called bait and switch. That's what happened to, to Jacob in the story. Okay, let's go to chapter 30. Because he's giving birth to 12 sons who become the 12 tribes. These are your patriarchs, right? So verse or chapter 30, verse 1 says, Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister, because Leah had already given him three or four by now. So when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So he said to her, or she said, sorry, so she said, Here is my maid Bilhah, go into her, and she will bear a child on my knees, that I may also have children by her. And then she gave, <laughs> he gave, she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as, uh, wife, and Jacob went into her, 
And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, with great wrestling, I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. And when Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob. Now, this translation says as wife, but it's not in the original text. He didn't marry him. He just had sex with them. It's just the truth. But we had to clean it up a little bit. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And then Leah said, I am happy for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. (laughs) Now watch this part. Now Reuben went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes. Everybody say mandrakes. Found mandrakes. (laughs) Oh, this is crazy. Mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, therefore, he will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. And when Jacob came out of the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me. Again, cleaning up the language. Can you imagine how this happened? (laughs) You must come into me for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night and God blessed it. God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And then Leah conceived again. So there's just sex and scandal going on all over the place here. I mean, this is a reality show of the, of the most amazing kind. Because here you have these two... Sisters, imagine the competition there. So Jacob, I mean, imagine being part of this family. This, this, this is the biblical model for family, one of them, and marriage. This is the one actually through which the blessing comes. This is the one actually through which the twelve tribes come. Not the curse, not death, not all that other stuff. Some of you are like, oh my God, what's he saying? Where's he going? I just want you to see the scandal that's in your Bible. This is in your Bible. Everybody say, this is in your Bible. This is it. This, you don't have to say this, but this is in the, this is the holy word of God right here. And here's what goes down. You got this competition. Who's going to have more babies? And one of them, Rachel, she can't have babies. She's barren. She can't have babies. So she says, I'll tell you what, I've got this slave here, this maid that was given to me by my father. It was one of the slaves. Again, we clean up the language. This is one of my slaves. Go into her. And she'll give me children. I'll have children. Think about how this is going down. And Jacob, you know, he doesn't protest. <laughs> like, hey, all right. So, so he hits it with the with the maid, and she gets pregnant, and 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 Rachel takes that child as her own. So, think about this. Now, she doesn't have any choice. The maid doesn't have any choice. I mean, maybe she don't want to sleep with Jacob. Who knows? Who? You have no idea. She has no choice. She goes in. She's made to have sex with this man. She gets pregnant. She goes through the pain of childbirth without an epidural. And then has to give up her baby to the one who made her sleep with the guy. 
But Jacob apparently liked it because he went at it again. <laughs> so that was pretty good. Let's get some more of that. I mean, listen, this guy will give any one of you guys out there a run for your money. <laughs> Think about it. So then later on in the story, Reuben, <laughs> the firstborn, finds mandrakes. What are mandrakes? Why does she want the mandrakes? Mandrakes, are you ready for this? Mandrakes are drugs. A mandrake in the Middle East is a narcotic and a hallucinogenic. She's going to get high. So it's like this. It's like Reuben, the son, is in the field and he just looks and finds some pot. Next to some mushrooms. And he plucks it and says, I'm going to give this to my mom. Here you go, mom. And mom says, oh boy, I'm going to get high tonight. But Rachel sees that she's got the drugs. So they make a drug deal. This is the truth. Give me your drugs. Give me your pot. Give me your shrooms. I want to, I want to, I want to get high. Well, I'm not giving them to you, but I'll tell you what, I'll let you sleep with my husband. I'll let you sleep with my husband. So, okay, all right, that's a deal. Okay, I'm going to get high. You go have sex with Jake. So so, so Jake comes in from the field, and, and the woman grabs him and said, I bought you for the night you're mine. I, I bought you with your wife's drugs. Now come into me. This is the holy word of God. And God is blessed by the whole thing, because He hearkens on... He hearkens on Leah and performs some kind of obstetric surgery on her so now she can have kids again. Right? And this is after so here's what's going on in the house. This is where this is the 12 tribes. So you got you got you got bigamy at least. You got the two wives. You got they both have maid servants. Rachel can't get pregnant, so she says, go hit it with my maidservant. So he goes and gets some. She gets pregnant. So he thinks, that's pretty good. So he goes, <laughs> hold Jake. He goes back for more. So then, so then, um, when, when Leah's barren, when she's barren, she sees what Rachel did. So she says, well, I'm gonna, I can compete with that. I got a servant girl too. So she goes to Jacob and says, hit it with my servant girl. So he says, oh, okay. I mean, what's he going to do? You know, what's a guy to do? <laughs> you know, wives submit to your husbands hadn't been written yet, apparently. Because Sarah told Abraham, go be with Hagar. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is the holy word of God. So he hits it with the other maid. She gets pregnant. So he goes at it again. Then you have a drug deal. You have a drug deal in the house. And the lady's saying, I bought you with my drugs. Now let's go. (laughs) And this is the patriarch. This is the founder of the feast. And this is how your 12 tribes came to be. So... (laughs) 
Next time somebody stands up and says, the biblical model for marriage is one man and one woman, just take them to this story. Say, <laughs> so here's, a, here's a biblical model for marriage and family. Later on, if you want, you can read about the incest. Oh, and by the way, Rachel and Leah were Jacob's first cousins. Letting that sink in a little bit. <laughs> Solomon. Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs all kinds of, like every marriage seminar I ever went to, we, we had to read from Proverbs. And if you were lucky, if, if the church talked about sex at all and you were lucky, they, they would go to the Song of Solomon. They would completely distort it and make it say what they wanted it to say. But nevertheless, you know, so Solomon wrote about sex in the Song of Solomon, uh, between a married man and a married woman. When it's not true, the, the truth of the Song of Solomon is the king is trying to seduce some poor shepherd girl who's in love with a shepherd boy and is refusing the king's offers so she can go be with her lover in the field. Go back and read it through those eyes, you'll see what I'm saying. But the church says, oh, no, 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 this is, you know, blessing and sanctifying sex within the context of marriage. And we made it all. And then we got into this all sick, like, we're the bride of Christ stuff that just, ugh. Anyway, we don't have time to go into all that. <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, you know the, the guy um, that was giving you a hard time on Facebook, um, big name preacher. Um, yeah, yeah. He, uh, I saw a video of one of his meetings. And they were into that whole bridal paradigm. And there's women on the floor basically mimicking an orgasm because they were the bride of Christ and Jesus was <laughs> paying them a visit. <laughs> it's absolutely the truth. I mean, just some of the crazy stuff. But see, people, they have scripture for this. Well, it's in the Song of Solomon. I mean, you could justify any kind of behavior in the world. You can find anything you want in the Bible and justify anything you want. You, you, you can justify war and violence if you want to justify it. You can justify polygamy and bigamy and, and all kinds of igamies if, if you want it. Drugs, drug deals. In the Holy Word of God. What you won't find anywhere in the Bible is a wedding ceremony. What you won't find anywhere in the Bible is vows being spoken. What you won't find anywhere in the Bible is a woman being able to choose the man that she's in love with. Nowhere. Doesn't exist. Because it did not exist in the ancient cultures. So you had a completely different ethic. A completely different ethic in those cultures than what we see today. The truth is, here's the truth. It's funny. Isn't it funny that right after Jesus talks about divorce in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't take any oaths. He said, don't take any oaths. Don't swear by anything on heaven or anything on earth. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And anything more than this, watch this, is from the evil one. So in Eastern Christianity, Eastern Orthodoxy, which holds to the oldest traditions of Christianity, in their marriage ceremonies, the couples do not take vows. I have to be honest, I kind of cringe whenever I have to do a wedding ceremony and the bride wants to be given away. 
Because it harkens back to who gives this woman to be married to this man as though it's not her choice based on a love relationship. It's the father's choice based on the husband that he wants her to marry. And it harkens back to that, but they don't realize that's what it is. They just have this romantic idea and this is what a wedding is supposed to be. And I love my dad and I want my dad to be able to give me away. But it has a completely different meaning, but its origins are still the same. So that marriage vows and marriage ceremonies did not come about until the Middle Ages. And monogamy was, was, was not the norm. It's, it was not the norm. Even today, even today, if you look at, at societies, not population, I'm going to be very clear, not population on planet Earth, but societies. Because societies are actually what determines how these things work. Societies determine it. So they surveyed societies. Now, a society can be something like Western civilization, a big, huge, giant society, or it can be as small as like an aboriginal tribe in Australia or the Maasai people who live in the Serengeti of Kenya and Tanzania. You tracking with me? So the Maasai people may only have a 1,000 or 2,000 whatever members, whatever the size of their tribe is. They would be considered a society because they have a way of doing things. So when they survey societies, well over 60% of societies today do not practice monogamy or marriage like we do. There was silence in Pueblo West for the space. I really want you to get this point. And it's certainly not that, listen, the ethics in the Bible are not at all relative to the ethics that we have today. And here's why. Because we think and navigate our world by categories. You've heard me use this illustration before. That the higher level of thinking that you have, the more categories you have in your brain to put information. And that is how you develop cognitively. So when Elijah, like, like, we had this war with Elijah. Well, I did. Julie wasn't really participating. But I was determined he was going to, his first word was going to be dad-dad. He was going to say dad-dad before he was going to say mama. So I had him, I'd look at him and dad-dad-dad-dad-dad-dad-dad. And we had a dog named Bubba. And I'll never forget his first word was Bubba. <laughs> was it mama or dad? It was Bubba. And Bubba was a black lab, and I'll never forget watching TV, and, and I think one of the Geico commercials or something like this black ape comes out or something, and he points at the black ape and he says, Bubba. And then he starts pointing at every animal as Bubba, 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 because he's got one category for an animal. And then as he gets older, he learns dog and cat. Now he knows the difference between a Great Dane and a black lab. You see how as your thinking increases, your categories change? So marriage is a category based on a societal ethic and agreement. It is not something that universally God has ordained to be one way. Because if that's true, how do you explain the patriarchs? How do you explain it? And you got to understand, it was about wealth because your labor force... It wasn't until the Industrial Revolution... Listen, guys, it wasn't until the 1900s that your wealth was not determined by your family. 
How many of you saw the, the movie, what was it, Coco? Where they did the Day of the Dead? Anybody see that movie? They were shoemakers, right? And he wanted to go out and be a musician. But you don't go out and be a musician, you're a shoemaker. Because your children are your labor force. So the more... Sorry, lady, I, like, I'm not, I don't want to be offensive here. I'm just telling the truth. The more women you could buy, the more wealth you had, the more women you could buy. The more women you could buy, why was it important that they were barren or not barren? It didn't have anything to do with sex, really. It had to do with the fact that this is my labor force. This is my retirement. And it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that you could leave your home and start something else. And it wasn't until much later than that that women could even go to work. Why did God hate divorce in the Old Testament? Because you were property. And you've got to understand, in, in the time of Jesus, this is very clear in the Talmud and the, and, the, and the Hebraic writings, if you burned the toast, if you burned the toast, your husband could divorce you. Now, to be without a man was to, in that society was to be without substance. To be without a man was to be cut off from any kind of financial support. You're not going to be able to eat. And if you had kids, usually she went too. And your husband could just, in Jewish culture, could just write you a certificate of divorce and send you off. And then you had two choices. You could either find somebody who would want to marry you, but they don't want to marry you because you're used goods, literally. You're tainted. Why would I marry you for nothing and you'd be an extra mouth for me to feed when I can just go down here and I can buy somebody younger? And by the way, they were getting bought as soon as they started maturing. So in some cases, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. So now you have 12, 14, 15-year-old women who have no choice about the man that they're being given to or the man that they have to sleep with so that they can bear him children. That's the biblical model of marriage. Is that what you want to be beholden to? Because it's the holy word of God. It's just, it's just the truth. And then in Jesus' day, if, if you, if you burn the toast, you're sent out. So now you got two choices. You can try and find some man that you can connect with or you can become a prostitute. Those are your choices. That's it. That is it. So no wonder God hated divorce. Here's the point I'm making. Our categories for love and marriage today did not exist. They were not even on the radar for the ancient people. And God did not have one ethic that was universally, morally absolute for all people for all times. If He did, then it's really messed up when you look in the Bible. Look in your Bible. Now, you'll notice a huge shift, because back to Solomon, I never finished with Solomon, Proverbs, all that stuff, right? Here's how you take care of your wife, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Well, he ought to know he found 700 good things. (laughs) And then he had 300 concubines on top of that. So, yeah, if you're going to take advice about women, guys... Find somebody who knows. I remember the church was wearing out, like, 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 it's so commercialized. Like, you remember the, the women are from Mars, and, no, women are from Venus and men are from Mars. Remember that? And, and the church was all bent out of shape because John Gray, I think, had been divorced. The author had been divorced like five times. He had five failed marriages. Who is he to be going out and giving marital advice? Well, probably a hell of a lot better than a priest. 
He messed it up five times. I probably could learn something from him more than I could going to a priest. for. I mean, why do you go to a priest for marriage counseling or premarital counseling or any kind of counseling? What do they know? You're tracking with me. That's the guy you're reading about. 700 Club. (laughs) Right? Society is totally different today. Completely different today. Ladies, aren't you glad you get to choose? Aren't you glad that you have opportunities for empowerment that are available to you in a society that you wouldn't have had back then? See, we'll, we'll, we'll keep women... Uh, there's so much to say about this issue. See, we want to structure relationships. Here's my problem. We want to say God has one structure for relationships, and this is what it's supposed to look like within this external structure. And if it doesn't look like this, it is a sin, it is not of God, and we've got to thunder from pulpits, and we've got to stop the evil from invading the land, and it has nothing to do with the justice within the context of the relationship and how you treat one another. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. You can't be unequally yoked. You have to marry a Christian. (laughs) Yeah, but this atheist loves me, and I love him, and we should be together, and this Christian guy over here is kind of a jerk, but I'm going to pick the Christian guy because God doesn't want me to be unequally yoked. (laughs) Or how about this one? So, so, so then what happens is women get themselves in these situations, and I'm, and I'm saying women primarily because they seem to be still, still, because we still live, in my opinion, in, in a, in a society where, where men have more power than women. We just do. I'm sorry if you don't like that, I'm sorry if that triggers you, but it's just the truth. And the ones that get triggered are the men. So here's a woman who's being taken advantage of, being abused, whatever. She comes to the pastor for counseling, and the pastor says, "Well, you've got to submit, and God hates divorce and all this stuff, and so you got to try and you got to stay in this marriage. You got to do whatever it takes." So young young lady in a marriage with a guy uh, hooked on pornography, um, doing whatever kind of stuff, not not working, not cleaning house, not helping her with anything, but she got married as a young Christian person. She has to stay with him and try to make it work. She's going to college. She has a dream for her life. But she's told by her church, none of that matters because what's more important is your marriage. So she gives up her authentic self. She gives up her dream and she gives up her empowerment to stay with some jerk because somebody told her, the Bible says, wives submit to your husbands and God hates divorce. And so God, when it says God hates divorce, He's trying to protect women, and we become so twisted and perverted by our religious indoctrination that we twist it and use it as a way to keep the woman in oppression, and we honor the letter and violate the very spirit by which God gave the commandment in the Scriptures to begin with. There are some people that are in marriages just need to get the hell out. And the quicker you do it, the better off you're going to be. And God blesses you for it, and we bless you for it, and God bless you. Move on. Because your relationship is unjust. A Christian man 
who tells his wife, who's been working all day. I mean, this stuff goes on. She's been working all day. She's got kids. She's cleaning house. She's tired. And the Christian man, it's 11 o'clock at night, she's ready to go to bed. No, you've got to perform your marital duties. I'm I'm horny. I want to get some. And the Bible even says you're not supposed to withhold from me. And so he basically rapes her and she submits to the rape because of her ideology. But they're married. And somehow this is sanctioned and this is just. But you get you get two people with a with a same sex orientation who love each other. And, And God can't have that. So let's just go there for a little bit. Let's just talk about... Uh, uh, i got about six messages I'm trying to get out at one time. <laughs> I just, I'm trying to make you think. Let's talk about wh- why the value voters. Why the value voters. And I'm going to upset you, and I'm sorry, but it's, I, I, I am compelled to keep saying this. Why the value voters? Because, all right. Slow down. Let me do this more methodically. See, here's the issue with same-sex marriage. We try to act like they had categories in the ancient cultures for what we're talking about today, and they did not. They didn't even have categories for the marriages that you're in. Your marriage is no more or less biblical than two homosexual people that want to come together. That's just the truth. Because the categories didn't exist. There was no category for a woman choosing a man. It didn't exist. So you want to go back to biblical models of marriage, you've got to go back to that. It's all over in the scriptures. Did you know the word homosexual? Now, this is going to shock you. The word homosexual is never used in the King James Version of the Bible. I'll let that sink in. Because that word didn't exist. The word that's used that gets translated homosexual in all your modern versions is effeminate. And it literally is a better translation. It means to be soft, to be female-like. Now watch this in those cultures. To be effeminate was to be lazy and not go out and work. Had nothing to do with who you were having sex with. So we took the term effeminate and translated it to homosexual and embedded it in the holy word of God that somehow it's reprehensible to God and it isn't even in the text. It's not even in the text. It's not there. Sodomy. Everybody knows what that is, right? As though the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexuality. Uh, let's look at the story. <laughs> you have three angel visitors. I guess they must have been pretty hot or something, I guess. And you got the town out there wanting to rape them. The issue is not how they're doing it. The issue is... They want to rape these guys. Gang rape. They want to gang rape them. And here's righteous law. You know what righteous law does? I'll send you my virgin daughters. Oh, there's father of the year. 
I mean, imagine this, ladies. Your dad, three three hot dudes show up that your dad's never met before, and they're having some metaphysical conversation. Then pretty soon the whole freaking town is out there wanting to attack these three guys because they want to have sex with them. And your dad stands up and goes out there and says, you can't have these three guests, but hey, I got two pretty good-looking women over here that never been with a man. I'll throw them out to you to get gang-raped. And this is a guy that was worthy of being delivered from Sodom. And in Ezekiel it says the sin of Sodom was their lack of hospitality and their abundance and their lack of hospitality to strangers. It's more akin to how we treat illegal aliens today than it is who you're having sex with. That's just your Bible. That's just your Bible. But somehow we turned it into this sexual term. Where's love in that? Where is love in that? See, it's so easy for us to condemn people that aren't like us. It's so easy if you're, if you have a strong heterosexual orientation, which is still in terms of numbers, hear me very clearly, in terms of numbers, the norm, meaning the majority of people have a heterosexual orientation than a homosexual orientation statistically, right? So there's strength in numbers with that group of people. You understand what I'm saying? So it's very easy to look at what someone else is experiencing that's totally other than your experience and judge it and condemn it, but you've never sat down and had a real conversation with them. How many transgender people do you actually know? How many of you sat down and listened to them without judgment and tried to hear their story? Because here's a dirty little secret that you don't know either. There are so many chemical processes that go on in the womb that determine gender. It's not just one. It's a very complex system. And the baby is getting bathed, if you will, with certain hormones when the baby is in the womb. And only one of those, let's say, I'm, I'm not a scientist, so I can't explain it very well, but only one of those baths determines genitalia. There are several others that determine physical structures. So it's quite possible for a person to have the feminine genitalia or the male genitalia and then everything else in their biological structure to be the opposite gender. That's biology. And i got to tell you, every transgender person on the planet is not trying to get in your bathroom. That is the... I gotta watch my language because they're kids, but that is the biggest crock I have ever heard that keeps you stuck in your prejudice. Because I can't tell you how many people I've tried to have a transgender conversation with to say, you know what, these are people that maybe we need to have compassion for and towards and on, and maybe we need to rethink how we're approaching the issue. And the only thing that gets brought up, well, they want to have, uh, you know, their their own bath. They want to be able to go in the opposite gender bathroom, or they're going to make us have a third bathroom. Really? The entire population of transgenders is out picketing, Target, give us our own bathroom. That's just something you heard on the news. And you know why? I'm going to tell you something. Because... (sighs) What motivates you to vote is what's important. So back to the two issues. Both abortion and same-sex marriage have one thing in common. It's about who's having sex and who we think they shouldn't be having sex with. 
Say, no, 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 it's about murdering babies. Okay, I'll go there. I'll say, yeah, I am pro-life all the way around. But let me ask you a question. Why that issue as opposed to capital punishment? Why that issue as opposed to free health care? Or how about this one? There are more people dying of famine than abortion. And Jesus says a whole lot more about caring for the poor than he does who you're sleeping with. So why not the passion and the motivation? If you're so pro-life, if you're so worried about people dying, why aren't you picketing and pushing and doing everything you can to end famine? Because you're being manipulated by a system that takes advantage of sexual repression. It's easy for me to judge someone who is homosexual or transgender because they're not like me. But when you sit down and talk to them as a human being, I, I, I'll never forget one of the first conversations that I had with, with uh, a woman who had married another woman and adopted a child and crying, telling me, I just don't believe God is going to send me to hell because I love this person and this person loves me. And begins to tell me about the quality and the justice of their relationships. And then cries and says, I want to raise my child. I was raised with Christian values. I believe in God. I'm a follower of Jesus. I want to be able to raise my child, but there is not a church in America that I can take my child to where I'm not afraid that they're going to tell my child that my child's going to hell or that their parents are going to hell or they're going to have all kinds of judgments. This is an issue that we have magnified that isn't even in the original texts. It's so twisted and so distorted. And so we say, okay, okay, it's okay to have a same-sex orientation, but you can't act on it. That's easy for me to say, listen, there's a reason I'm not a Catholic priest. I mean, seriously. Like, I am not, like, I'm committed to this 100% of my time, but I am not going to take a vow of chastity. I'm just not going to do it. But then I'm going to turn around and tell someone else who isn't even in the ministry, you have to take a vow of chastity just because you were born that way. It makes no sense. Because we hold up an ethic from an ancient culture as though God ordained one thing and God didn't ordain one thing. God is a lot more flexible than that. And maybe God is more interested in the love and justice that is going on within the relationship than the external structure of that relationship. The issue of sexual repression. And this is where I'm going to bring it home. The church gives you a solution for a problem that they convinced you that you have. All salvation, just like all mercy, is predicated upon the belief that there is something inherently wrong with you. If there's not something inherently wrong with you, there's nothing to be saved from. If there's not something inherently wrong with you, there is nothing to be forgiven Four. So how, so I got to thinking, how on earth, see, how did we go from, how did we go from this? Just watch this. You got all this sex and mess in the Bible. 
drug deals, sex, all over the place. I mean, really, think about that as a reality show to watch. And then you're being told, these are the people of God. (laughs) And God's so blessed by this drug deal prostitution thing that he hearkens and opens the woman's womb. That's in your Bible. I just read it to you. How did we go from that to where we are today? How do we go from a book and a text that's very open about all this stuff and God doesn't seem bothered by it to you can commit any sin on the planet except a sexual sin? Think about it. Know of any minister that ever got in big trouble where he wasn't in somebody's pants that he shouldn't have been? I'm sorry, am I being too crude? Think about this. You remember Jimmy Swaggart? Some of you are old enough in here remember Jimmy Swaggart? Here's old Jimmy, you know, thundering, don't, you know, repress, repress, repress. And you come down, oh my God, I've been thinking about sex all week long. And you come down to the altar and you kneel down, oh God, forgive me. Forgive me, I've been lusting, I've been, oh Jesus. And Jimmy prays for you, come out in the name of Jesus. And then Jimmy's wife prays for you and the prayer team prays for you. And you go home this wet rag of guilt, hoping that you've been forgiven. And then what's Jimmy doing that night? Jimmy's putting on his bandana and getting in his thunderbird and and heading down to get with some prostitute. (laughs) You know why women have been oppressed in the church? You know what, ladies, you know why you said, we talked about this in the first service, you know why you have to have a covering and all that other BS? You know why? Because guess what? Us as men who are heterosexual, are biologically wired for a chemical bath when we see an attractive lady. And from what I'm told from some people older than me, sometimes that doesn't even go away. <laughs> I've, I, yeah, I've had 80-year-old men tell me, I'm struggling with it worse now than I was when I was 16. I've had homosexual men who've tried to live straight and lived a lie their entire life trying to live straight and pray the gay away and when in doubt, cast it out. I mean, you remember Focus on the Family? Can can I just tell the truth on us? I'm going long today, but can I just tell the truth on us? You remember Focus on the Family? You got James Dobson and the the, the trout guy, right? And they're sitting there thundering about God... God's version of marriage, the biblical model of marriage is one man and one woman. And then Mike Trout finishes the radio show and goes down to the gay bar. You got Ted Haggard thundering about, we got to make same-sex marriage illegal in Colorado and then going down and picking up male prostitutes and having sex with this massage therapist who was a man. Because it's in your biology. So here's what we do to young people. Well, I really thought about it. Here's what we do to young people. And we do to, to everybody. We, You are given a biological process. Listen, there is no life without sex. you got to have air to survive. you got to have food to survive. you got to have water to survive. And you got to have sex for your species to survive. So you are biologically watered to breathe. You are biologically wired to drink. You are biologically wired to eat. And you are biologically wired to want sex. That's your body. 
That's the way you're wired. That's the way God created you. When David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that was included. We have no taboos against air. We have no taboos against food, especially if it's ziti and fried chicken at a, at a, at a church potluck. But we have taboos about sex because the only way we can convince most people that they are evil is to tell them that their biology is evil. And we know we can't tell them that their thirst is evil. And we know we can't tell them that their hunger is evil. And we know we can't tell them their compulsion to breathe is evil because then they're going to die and they're going to be able to put money in our plate. (laughs) So we tell them that their sex drive is evil. And so now they're living with it and we send them so many messages about sex is evil and, and, and we don't want you having sex and we don't want teenagers having sex because we don't want a pregnant daughter and we're afraid we're going to have a pregnant daughter or we're afraid of venereal disease, whatever we're afraid of. So we put all this pressure on them, right? And so then a preacher can stand up and say, young people, you were born rotten to the core, but without telling you that your sex drive is sinful, they don't have one leg to stand on when they tell you that. You will not believe them. Most people that I've counseled over the years and whatever, they don't feel guilty about their lies. Which, by the way, let's just clear something else up. I'm going all over the place with this. I'm just like, bleh. <laughs> let's clear something up about lies. The, 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 the Ten Commandments is not... Thou shalt not lie. The Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. To bear false witness is to make up a lie about someone in order to destroy their character for your own personal advantage. It's not telling your wife she looks good in that dress. (laughs) Or telling your husband, Yeah, it doesn't matter. You put on a few pounds, honey. I love you the same anyway. Here's my point. Most people are not beating themselves up because they told some lies. Most people don't have a compulsion to go out and steal. Most people believe that they're sinful or not right with God because they don't know how to handle the sexual energy that's trying to find expression through them, and so they repress it. So here's the thing. That is... Everything on... (laughs) on the planet is doing this in order to perpetuate its society. Lizards, dogs, cats, humans. Right? It is, it is the life force. I hate to tell you this, but you're a byproduct of sex. No, that's a shock to some people in the the Christian church. (laughs) Absolute shock. (gasps) I can't imagine my parents ever doing it, but... One, two, three... I got got three siblings, I guess they at least did it four times. (laughs) Oh my God! So here's the problem. So, so recently, you know, Todd Bentley got in trouble again, um, and his actions were not just; they were predatory. And reading some of the stuff that went on there is just don't even bother with it. And he's in ministry, but but let me just 
throw out a suggestion. One of the things I've noticed, and I was, I was talking to Aaron about it before, or no, Justin, I think, or somebody. No, Stephanie. I was talking to Stephanie about it before. Um, like the, the, the Spirit of God, what we call the Holy Spirit, is, is, an, is the living energy of the Creator and of God that's inside of you that wants to find expression. It's the life inside you that wants to find expression. And that life does not care what you think, believe, or do. It's going to find expression. It's such a powerful force that it's coming out in spite of your maps and the way you've chosen to think and believe. Which is why you can have people on different ends of the spectrum that can move in, quote-unquote, gifts of the Spirit, healings, miracles, words of knowledge, things like that. I've seen people completely disagree on issues, preach totally different issues, and all of them move in some kind of power. God, I've done it myself. Because it's the, it's the expression of that energy that counts, not... Like, it's, it's like that, it's like the energy of the Spirit is moving in spite of your beliefs, not because of them. Right? Can I tell you, sexuality is that same kind of life-giving energy. And so it's going to seek expression regardless. Now, that expression is going to be filtered through the messages that you receive. So if you get affirming messages that it is sacred, that it is biological, that it is okay, that it is something to be embraced and not something to be repressed or to run away from. It's not separating you from God. It's not making God angry. It's not disqualifying you as a Christian. It's not sending you to hell. It's your biology and the way you were made. And it is sacred. It is holy. It is life-giving. It is beautiful. If you grow up with those messages, then when that energy seeks to express itself, what's it going to be filtered through? It's going to be expressed, obviously, in a sacred, holy, loving way. If you receive messages that it's dirty, that it's shameful, that it needs to be repressed, that it's the root of all evil, that it's whatever the case may be, and you're suppressing, 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 and it can only be expressed in this one particular way with this one particular person in this one particular context, and you want to go beyond that, but you're not allowed to go beyond that, then what happens is, is you, oftentimes, that sexual repression will turn into a predatory thing because it's got to find expression, but you're like locked into this, oh, it's evil, it's unclean, it's all this. And so then when you act on it, what do you do? You act on it in an evil, unclean, and predatory way. How do you um, how do you close something like this? I mean, like I like I un, I unpacked a lot, right? But I'm, I'm just telling you, people have neuroses, they have OCD, they have anxiety disorders, they feel ashamed. The the, the suicide rate among the, the suicide rate is highest among same sex oriented people who are born in Christian families. If it was easy to change. You wouldn't have Mike Trout on there saying, oh, the same-sex marriage, same-sex, or not, you know, we're against same-sex marriage, one model, one model, a man and a woman, blah, 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 and quit the radio show and go down the street to the gay bar. And then get up the next day and do it again. Until somebody caught him with a hidden camera or something. If it's that easy to change. 
but we're going to thunder against them and we're going to... Because we're misapplying Scripture. We're misappropriating it. So things shifted with Augustine. Augustine didn't know how to deal with his sex drive because he came from a Greek religious system prior to Christianity that said sexuality and everything physical was evil. And he imported his struggle into Christian theology and created the doctrine of original sin and embedded it in Christian consciousness in the West. And we've had to deal with it ever since. And the reason women are oppressed is because men, it's a male-driven, male-dominated society, the church, and we are wired to have a reaction to the woman, but we don't want to deal with our own reaction because we're struggling with our own sexual repression. So it projects outward and it becomes the oppression of women rather than the proper expression of that which was part of the original blessing when Adam and Eve were naked in the garden. All right. I know I opened a big... Maybe not. I don't know. What do you think, Justin? I opened a big can of worms. I'm just inviting you to look at things differently. They did not have categories for two people loving each other, male and female, much less male, male, or female, female. It didn't exist in the Bible. And so maybe, just maybe, what we were supposed to do, maybe we're told in the New Testament that Jesus said, one commandment, I give you one commandment, that you love one another. And maybe what we are supposed to do as human beings is because really relationships are structured by society, not ordained of God. Then maybe what we are supposed to do is use the energy of love to think through issues and ask ourselves, what would love do in this situation? And maybe if we centered things upon love and weren't so hung up on the structures which are used to control, then maybe things would really change in our society. Maybe next time you see a transgender person, instead of cursing them as evil and full of demons, maybe you could understand that maybe things did not go as symmetrically towards one gender in the womb as it did for you. Thank you. And the most basic level of identity is gender. If you can't figure out, I mean, gender reveal parties, right? What are you having, a boy or a girl? If you can't figure out your gender, listen to me. If you can't figure out your gender because you feel like you're in the wrong body, you cannot figure out what you're going to do for a living. You cannot figure out your sexual orientation. You cannot figure, I mean, things we take for granted. You cannot see a future because in your future, even your career-wise, you have to imagine yourself as your, as your assigned gender within that career. And I'm going to tell you something else that's going to shock you. Ancient cultures had better categories for dealing with transgendered people. And Jesus even talks about it when he talks about eunuchs. Eunuchs in ancient culture, guess what? A lot of them were gay. A lot of them were homosexuals. And Jesus said, some of them are born this way. What do you do with that? Big shot. You're so sure of yourself. Thunder in scripture. 
He says some of them were born that way. But see, you just pass over that. Eunuchs had a place in the church. Eunuchs had a place in the society. And that was the gay and transgender community of our day. And Jesus said some of them are this way for the kingdom of God. Can I just tell you one other dirty little secret? You might as well, right? <laughs> and then I'm done. I gotta, I gotta shut this down. Like, I just, I gotta stop this train. It's out of control. It's off the rails. Going way longer than I wanted to. The servant, remember the centurion comes to Jesus and said, my servant, my servant is dying and he says, I will come and heal him. And he says, speak the word only. My servant may be healed. The Greek word there for servant was a specific kind of servant that was his homosexual lover. Uh Uh-oh. How you guys doing? Anybody get triggered? Not that you have to raise your hand. No, seriously, like my goal is not to trigger you, but here's what frustrates me. There's so many things that we say the Bible says, and we're just lying to people. And we're using it to hurt people, and we're using it to oppress people. Because we want them to conform to our normal standards. I in no way want to endorse any kind of unjust or predatory sexual behaviors. You understand what I'm saying? If you have power over a person for whatever reason and you are using that, because that's what was going on here. So I'm not saying that God endorses that kind of behavior, but that's what's going on. You're going to sleep with my husband, whether you want to or not. You're going to sleep with him until he makes you pregnant, and then I'm going to take your baby. So I'm not endorsing that. So we're not streaming, but I just want to be clear. I'm just saying God is far more expansive. Sexuality is far more expansive. And human relationships are far more expansive. And maybe we need to quit talking about them in terms of societal categories. And maybe we need to talk about just what is justice. What does justice look like in the context of a relationship? What does love look like in the context of a relationship? It is not loving to abuse your wife and then use scripture to say you're supposed to submit to me. It's not loving when a person's in an abusive marriage to not tell them to get the hell out. (laughs) It just isn't. It's not loving to take two people who love each other and have decided to live together and say somehow God rejects you. He accepts the gossips and the gluttons and the, and the drunkards and the, the greedy corporation executives and the capitalists and whatever else, but he doesn't accept you. It's wrong. And I think the church needs to repent over it, so that's where I'm at with it. So, All right, let's stand up. <laughs> Sorry, i got to shut this thing down. Like I opened a whole can of worms. I should probably come back and revisit it a little bit. 
going to make you think, though, right? And if you're getting mad, if you're getting triggered, please take a few minutes and ask yourself, why are you getting triggered? What is it, what is it inside of you that got touched? Because if it's your righteous indignation, I'm going to tell you right now, you, you do not have scripture for it. You do not. So if you don't have scripture for it, where are you coming from? It's time we quit lying to people, telling them the Bible says stuff the Bible doesn't say. Because we're cherry picking. Let's pray. Close your eyes for just a minute, if you would. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of truth. You're a spirit of love and power. And I thank you for your deposit and presence inside of every person in this building right now. I thank you that you motivate us to find truth, that which is real. I thank you that you motivate our hearts towards love. I thank you that you're moving in such a way that everything that can be shaken is being shaken. And I ask that you'll help us as a community and as individuals to find our way forward in these things so that we can become a true and genuine extension of the love of God in our community. And Lord, I pray for healing right now all over this room. People have no idea what they may have struggled with in their own life in terms of their own relationships, in terms of their own sexuality, maybe even in terms of their own gender identity, whatever. I just ask that you would bring a healing presence right now to their hearts, to their bodies, to their minds. And that you'd bring peace to whatever area got triggered. In Jesus' name. God bless you. Have a great day. Thank you for coming.